This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Ever go to watch a Broadway show and wonder how they pull off such great shows? It's a very daunting task at times. John Bralio writes about it in his book, I Want to Be a Producer, How to Make a Killing on Broadway, or be killed. He spent more than three decades working in the entertainment industry, and he is joining us right now. John, welcome. Uh, how are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. Great uh, great to have you on. Uh, so you've been in this industry for a long time, both as a lawyer and producing shows. So is there a magic sauce to this? Uh no. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, even though the theater is probably the most magical um, uh, business you could imagine, uh, it's also the most daunting. But there's no, no, no magical song to it. Um, it, it it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really tough business, but it's one of those businesses that, even though it's got high, high risk, just about high as anything you can imagine, the, uh, the rewards are enormous when it, when it works. You, as you said, are, are, uh, are a lawyer, and you talk in the book about having a good lawyer as a very important piece uh, to being successful on Broadway. Yeah, well, uh, there, there are what, what's called entertainment lawyers, and I knew nothing about that when I first became a lawyer. In fact, I had no idea I was going to be a lawyer. I thought I would just be in, in show business. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a director mm-hmm. when I was in college. But then I became a lawyer. Uh, I was around Vietnam. Didn't really know what else I was going to do. I didn't really want to perform. And I found out about lawyers who represent people in the arts. And I went down to New York and uh, joined what is, was my firm, Paul Weiss, Rifton Wharton Garrison. And I realized that I could combine my love of theater and film with my uh, legal practice. And that's what I did for more than three decades. I represented um, producers, directors, writers, uh, all sorts of different people, both in film and in, in, in theater. Uh, and after doing it for that many years and having been really basically a shadow producer in the background, helping yeah. many, many producers get their shows on, I decided I wanted to start doing it for myself. So I ultimately left my practice and now I'm a full-time producer. But the transition was not too difficult, because as a lawyer, and with the, all the years I was doing this, I was doing probably about 50 or 60 percent of what producers do anyway. Uh, and making the transition, I still had a lot to learn, but it wasn't as if I was going from being a doctor to an architect. You sure. know? I mean, it, it, it was a pretty good transition. Are there common misconceptions uh, about trying to be successful on Broadway? Well, one misconception is that um, it's not as risky as it really is. The, the risk okay. of, of, of a show making its money back on Broadway is over 90%. Uh, there are about 41 shows, 42 shows every year that open, and vast majority of them did not make their money back. Uh, and uh, even though you read about the Hamiltons, the Lion Kings, Cats, and Phantom of the Opera, that are they are billion-dollar enterprises. Yeah. There's no question. The vast majority do not make their money back, and it's a very, very tough business. But because the rewards can be 
every once in a while. So enormous. I mean, for an investment of $12, $15 million to have a show that becomes a multi-billion dollar worldwide enterprise, that's not so bad. Uh, and it's the lure of that enormous return that keeps people investing. And keep in mind that people who invest in Broadway, uh, they can live without the quarter of a million or half a million or a million dollars even that they invest in. Mm -hmm. This is not something that you, you know, <laughs> go to mom and pop. You, know, it, you really have to be someone who has the resources. And I say this to people all the time who invest. I said, if you are going to change your lifestyle, and even more than lifestyle, is this is going to threaten your kid going to college or anything, don't even think about it. I right. don't care. You know, there's no sure bet in the theater. Uh, we're talking with John Braleo, who's the author of the book, I Want to Be a Producer, How to Make a Killing on Broadway or Get Killed. Uh, you actually, it's mentioned in the notes that, that came with the book about how this is kind of partly your your life story, but it's also a little bit of a handbook so that, yeah. so that people have kind of an idea of, of what actually goes into the process. Yeah, Dan, I, I cannot tell you in my career and even now uh, – I get the question asked all the time, well, what does a producer do? Uh, <laughs> people have total misconception. They, they think it's sort of some, you know, overweight guy with a stogie and, you know, <laughs> uh, right out of the producers, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, and, well, maybe there are a lot of overweight people who are producers, but that's not what what producers do they and they don't have, they maybe they have a casting couch i don't know about that but the, what what they do is they start the process from day one with the idea and then it's a journey that goes on sometimes four five six seven years until opening night on broadway and they have to do everything they raise money they know about the idea they have to get the the the, the writers together they have to get the director and the choreographer hired they yeah. have to get the scenic designers they have to do advertising publicity as i said um, they have previews they have auditions the process is is you know a, a multidisciplinary uh, 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 responsibility when it comes to the job description. And if you're not good at it and you're not experienced at it, the project will fail because you're the only one who knows the whole whole process or should have the, the experience to, to follow it through. So that's why I wrote the book. There was nothing out there that I knew that people could go to one book and understand what the entire journey is yep. from soup to nuts and in a way that was i hope uh entertaining because throughout the book i have all my personal stories whether it's with sondheim or angeloid weber and patty labone or mel brooks or whatever i i have these personal stories which illustrate what i've been talking about in terms of how you actually do it is there a major – well, I know there is a, a difference, but when you talk about, about Broadway as an entity, a lot of people think, you know, you know the, the big theaters, you know, right going right through Midtown. Uh, and there are so many other shows that are kind of the off-Broadway shows. Is there a major – financially, there is a major difference in terms of prepping for a show, I would think – off-Broadway compared to Broadway, but realistically, the A, Bs, and Cs of it are probably the same, correct? Well, that's right. I mean, that's an interesting, you know, uh, uh, comment about it, because if you're producing a play 
literally in a high school, right? Sure. Or in a community, uh, a community theater, or in college, or off off Broadway or off Broadway. The the basic components of what a, a producer has to do are exactly the same. Yep. I mean, you still need to to have the idea, to have the rights, to know you have the legal abil- uh, rights to do it. You have to bring the act authors together. You have to have yep. a director, choreographer, all that stuff. And then if it's any good and it's commercial, <clears throat> you have to sell it, uh, market and advertising it. So even though I write the book, at the what you might consider the very highest sophisticated level, which is Broadway, where a musical costs fifteen million dollars, and a and a play, uh, a non-musical play costs three and a half to four. All those elements are the same. It's the same thing, but it's just on a very, very, uh, you know, small, a very small scale. Uh, but um, that's why I think the book is helpful because it, it yep. gives it gives you the the the, the outline and the the, the architecture of what it is to do just about any show. But the decision to to try and put a play either on Broadway or off Broadway, I mean, now something like the producers, you know, whether you're talking about the most recent version or the one from 40 years ago uh, and the Lion King and some of these, those are the easy ones that almost automatically go to that. How What's that, that dividing line when you have a play or you're potentially investing in something that, you'll say, well, this is probably something we should go off-Broadway instead of trying to put it right on and have to spend the $15 million. Well, uh, as you say, there are those shows that, of course, by definition, go to Broadway, like The Lion King. Uh, But if you have a a play, a new playwright who's written a play with four or five characters and you think it has promise, unless that playwright has some reputation unless you can get a a big star in that show you probably can't get it on broadway you you won't get a theater even yeah so then you're faced with other alternatives and we're we're the we're the new plays the new playwrights really are being developed now and and they've been developed now for many, many years, are in the not-for-profit regional theaters. I mm-hmm. mean, in New York, you're talking about, um, you know, the Manhattan Theater Club and Playwrights Horizon and then Joe Papp's Public Theater. These are the off-Broadway, not-for-profit theaters that live on uh, producing plays and musicals that aren't necessarily uh, commercial hits. Mm-hmm. And this is where they 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 grow organically. Uh, and the ultimate example of that was a show that you know I was in, uh, uh, intimately involved in, and still involved in, is a chorus line. A right. chorus line started off Broadway in Joe Papp's uh, theater downtown. No one even knew what it was. It was just a bunch of stories. And Michael Bennett, who was the genius behind it, got these people together, and uh, they just started building it organically with a composer and a lyricist and then designers and actors who contributed some work. Yeah. And then suddenly the thing took shape. But even then, Michael Bennett only did it off-Broadway in a 400-seat house. He didn't bring it to Broadway. But then it was an explosion, just like Hamilton, the same kind of thing that just rocked the, the whole theater world. And then, of course, it moved to Broadway. And the same thing sort of happened with Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton was not conceived originally as a Broadway play. They didn't know what they had there. Uh, and so the play, the, these smaller plays that sometimes seem 
much riskier. That's those are the ones that are done off Broadway, and the costs can't compare. Uh, you know, you can do a play off Broadway for eight hundred thousand dollars as opposed to four million on Broadway. Right now, musicals are very hard to do off Broadway because. They're expensive sure, yeah. to run, yeah. and they're, the ticket prices are much lower, and they're, the capacity is lower. So, you know, you, 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 you often can't even afford to do a musical off-road way unless it's quite... Oh, hello, oh. J- John? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, we lost you there for a second. Go ahead. Oh, oh sorry. No, uh, so, uh, no, I don't know where you, if you lost me, but uh, I was just saying the, 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 the cost is, is yep. so completely different. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber before, and, and uh, obviously if, if anybody follows Broadway, they know Andrew Lloyd Webber right off the top, Phantom of the Opera. Sure. And I can't remember exactly, but didn't Phantom of the Opera start over in London and then eventually come to the United States and I, I don't I mean I think was Phantom of the Opera similar that it started out small and just grew into this unbe- unbelievable Goliath no no uh, there, I, I discuss this in the book um, it's the thing we call the the 80s for the theater sort yeah. of the British invasion yes uh, and those included started with cats. Yeah, yep. And then it uh, was Phantom of the Opera, Miss Saigon, Les Mis. Yep. All those shows started in England in the West End of London, which is the equivalent of our Broadway. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And they were all mammoth productions. I mean, they were big from the very, very beginning. Les Miserables was slightly different. It, it started in at the Royal Shakespeare Company in London, which is. Uh, similar to what we would consider a not-for-profit here, but it was still a big production. So all those shows made those shows different from most of the musical American musicals. They started in London. They were the British musicals. And they came over here uh, pretty much intact in the way they were over there. I was at the opening night of Phantom of the Opera in London at uh, at the Prince Edward Theater, and it was unbelievable i mean it was uh, it was a um, a revelation to everybody that something uh, uh, based on this very famous movie and legend almost um uh, could be put on the stage with the falling chandelier and everything else but it was a sensation from from day one cats wasn't cats actually um no one knew what that was going to be no one really thought it would work in london right um but after it opened, it just grew in popularity, and as you know, I mean, <laughs> one of the greatest billion-dollar uh, oh, projects yeah. in the world, and it's coming back to Broadway next year. <laughs> God, it it doesn't it doesn't have an end to it. No, it, they they coined, which is great for every show should have a you know a phrase that's coined now and forever, and <laughs> yeah. it is forever. Because because the the percentages of shows that don't make their money back is so low. Is it is it hard to find investors for this? I mean, obviously, once people kind of get into it and and they have a little taste of success, they probably are more willing to to stay in it. But if somebody you know invests in two or three shows and they don't get their money back, I, I would think that it's harder uh, harder for them to want to stay in it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. If if you're someone who has never done it before. And you've talked to a friend, and that friend says, I know there's a chance for you to put in, you know, $100,000 in this show. Would you like to do it? That kind of investor who gets burned uh, even only twice, 
uh, or and worse, three times, they don't come back. Yeah. But there are so many people out there with the kind of money that, that we're talking about. You know, we're not talking about $100 million. We're talking about investments of a couple hundred thousand, three, four hundred thousand. Yeah. And, of course, that's a lot of money to people, some people. But we know there's a lot of money out there. People do have it. The, the market may not be through the roof right now, but it is relatively strong. Yeah. And when you have that kind of market, there are always people out there who are first-timers who want to jump in. And there are enough people who have done pretty well um, to, to stay in the game. Um, so I'm always surprised, however, that <laughs> you know, 30, 40 plays uh, a year get financed. I mean, it, it, they're still out there, but I think it's the classic situation where people hear about the billion dollar uh, billion dollar success, yeah, and they they're willing to throw the dice. I mean, it's a gamble, right? But um, yep. it's like the restaurant business, the theater business, horse race business. These are gambles that are very very high risk. But when you win, it's not only a lot of money, but the pleasure factor is enormous. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a lot more fun to be at an opening night and make a lot of money than put your money into you know, corn futures, right? You, you talk about, exactly right. You talk about a lot of different things in this book, uh, you know, the, the director, the choreographers, the, the designers, the auditions and casting calls. You even talk at the end of the book about the opening night party and, <laughs> and what the expectations are for a producer to provide for an opening night party. Yeah, well, you know, having been to... I can't tell you how many opening night parties sure, I've been to yeah. in my, my, my career, you know, maybe a thousand or more. Um, there are so many mistakes people make at the opening night party. So the way I wrote that chapter was not this is what you have to do. I said this is what you should not That's right, do. right, exactly. So yeah. I have a whole list of don'ts because um, actually, you know, uh, it, most people who go to the opening night party uh, are the actors and all the creative people, and they, you know, they have a ball. But before they even get there, you have all these people who go to every Broadway show imaginable. They're the theater owners, they're the lawyers, they're the agents, they're the publicity people. They're so used to Broadway parties, and they know what they want. They want. They don't want to have to stand around and have to cut meat. They want. Be yeah. able to, you know, have finger food. They want to be able to get in and get out. You better have all the food ready when they get there <laughs> because they don't want to sit and wait for the reviews because most of the reviews are out. Um, you know, there are a whole bunch of mistakes that people make. The music's too loud and people can't schmooze, so don't have loud music. So I just made a laundry list of uh, of the things that you should not do and. I actually saw last night uh, the woman who runs most of these parties, and she just read my book, and she said, that's what I'm going to give every producer to make sure they they, they don't make the mistakes that uh, a lot of producers make. I, I would think I would think that in this age of, of digital media that a lot of those reviews are out probably just as the show is ending, if not maybe even before, while because you have Twitter, and people can sit there and tweet out stuff about well, the you're show. You're absolutely right. You know, I talk about this in the book that in the old days, um, you did not know any of the reviews, and you, the opening night, all the critics were in the, in the, in the audience, and yeah. everybody was waiting and waiting, and then you'd go to the party. And you had to wait the, till the next day, right? Well, sometimes they, they would come out 
uh, around 11, 11 o'clock, 11.30. Okay. And then they'd start to circulate, particularly the New York Times. Right. That was the first one and the most important one. So it was very exciting. And I remember the opening of Annie. Uh, we weren't sure how big a hit it was going to be. We thought it was going to be good, but not whether it was going to be through the roof. And the guy who played uh, Daddy Warbucks uh, got an advanced copy of the Times around 11 o'clock, stood up on the bar uh, a place called Gallagher's, and read this review, and it was like New Year's Eve. I mean, everybody screaming and yelling. I mean, that was very exciting. Now, all the critics come to the show three nights before the opening. They don't even come opening night. And then there's opening night, and by time there's opening night, the producer's public relations guy has at least at least a half dozen reviews already. Oh, wow. And now he doesn't have the times. The, the, you don't get the times till about ten o'clock, but yeah. then you do have it at ten. And I've warned in the book, producers, if you can, don't look at your public relations guy's eyes because <laughs> <laughs> if he's really depressed, you'll be depressed. Enjoy the party, whatever happens. Yep. You have this one moment, one moment that party to have some fun. John, thanks very much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Well, thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.